0: What's up, everybody? Tour dates, I got them. Well, actually, I got one big one. It's coming up October 21st, San Pedro, California, which, of course, is my neighborhood in Los Angeles. I'm going to be at the Grand Annex. I'm producing a comedy series at the Grand Annex in San Pedro, California. The first show is October 21st. And it features myself and Stephanie Blum. Stephanie Blum has been on Nickelodeon, MTV, HBO, you name it. She's phenomenal. She's one of my favorite comics in all of L.A. She's one of my favorite comics anywhere, really. And that show featuring her and myself is going to be on October 21st, 8 p.m., San Pedro, California, at the Grand Anna. You can get tickets at romplacone.com. Again, that's October 21st, Saturday night. 8 p.m. at the Grand Annex, Stephanie Blum and myself, tickets at romplacon.com. See you there. Episode 002 Celeste Lacine. Celeste is a performer, award winning filmmaker, and activist. They help find not one, but two nonprofits for LGBTQ youth the Trevor Project, and the Future Perfect Project. Celeste had a show at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival called Poof. My friend Michael Blaha, who will definitely be a guest on this show in the future, produced Celeste's show, so I went to it. Celeste's show was brilliant. They built the bridge between the struggle for LGBTQ rights and climate change. I knew I wanted to have them on the show. Celeste is a perfect example of somebody using their art to make the world around them a little bit better. Not to sound cheesy, but I think at the end of the day, that's all any creative person can really ask for. Things get a little emotional in this interview, in a good way. Also, I share a story from my youth that I've actually never shared before. I don't know why I've never shared it before. I guess because it's not really a flattering story for me, but I was nine or ten years old when it happened. Anyway, I love talking to Celeste, and this is what One Thousand's all about. There's one guest, one interview, so let's make it count. Please welcome to the show, Celeste Lacine.
1: <music>
0: Celeste Lacine, thank you so much for being here. Good to see you again.
1: It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So uh I saw your show Poof in Edinburgh which uh congratulations on the five star review first Thank of all. Thank you. Thank you so uh, much. Isn't
1: it fun to say that word? Poof.
0: Yes. Yes, it, it it's a super <laughs> fun show. So so let's start there for a little bit. I I want to go to Edinburgh first since that's where we um well we didn't directly cross paths but uh but we were able to connect after. Um so uh, how was your experience? And uh, also tell uh, tell the listeners uh, about Poof. I got to see the show, but but kind of give the synopsis for everybody.
1: Well, you know, it's a very unusual show for Edinburgh. So I found um, it's it's um, uh, well, first of all, I um, it's a story about a fa- about a fairy, a real life fairy, uh, played by me, who comes to the human species to basically get their hopes up and um, encourage them to actually change in order to be able to survive what's coming. And it's also a kind of allegory about queerness and what queer people know about surviving by sometimes being invisible and sometimes being visible and our connection to the earth and to the, the world around us in a way that maybe it's not so evident. So I sort of conflated the history of fairies and the history of queerness. And then I used it in the service of waking people up about climate change and uh, hopefully, you know, opening their hearts and making them laugh and sort of think a little bit as well.
0: So when I watched the show, which again, I enjoyed very much, Uh, I was talking to uh, a friend of mine who I went to see the show with. And and yeah, that was something I wanted to ask you. So was the fairy element, was that a metaphor? Or is is that actually a nod to the history of fairies just in the world? Or a little bit of both?
1: Well, you know, I think as a queer person, it's one of the first things you're called when you're a child, you know. And you get tagged with that name and you associate yourself with fairies and for good or for bad, right? Like you just, you just think like, oh, how'd they know? And um, as I got older, I I sort of decided that I was going to, just like we reclaimed the word queer, um, there was something I wanted to explore about reclaiming the word fairy and the idea of fairies. and, 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 you know, just like Fairies, queer people have had to be invisible at certain times in the history of the world um, and then sometimes make themselves visible for various reasons. So it's sort of it's sort of both. It sort of plays with the whole idea of queerness and the whole idea of fairies. As fairies are, it's very playful.
0: Are there people who not like identify as fairies, but like like fairy, you know how there's some people who they consider themselves witches and that usually has nothing to do with with the decorations you see at Halloween. It, it's a totally, you know, different thing, and, and that's always been very fascinating to me. The fact that yes, there are witches, there are vampires. Um, you know, in that I don't know a ton about, but I do know it's a thing in New Orleans. Is that a thing with fairies as well, to to your knowledge? Well,
1: in the queer community, there are a group of people called radical fairies. And radical fairies, um, they have a very particular ethos and they live slightly, you know, off the grid when they go, uh, they go into the woods and they all live together and they, you know, there are places where you can go to be a radical fairy and in their lives, they consider themselves radical fairies. They, they're um, you know, they're, they're like a tribe of they're a subset of gays and, um, you know, for me, I consider myself a fairy. Like uh-huh. I just I, you know, I, I consider myself, you know, I'm 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 many things. I'm queer, I'm gay, I'm non-binary. But I just, you know, as I got older, I was like, oh, that's what I am. I'm a fairy. And I always was. And um you know, one of the things that I ask people to do in the show, as you know, is to basically I ask if there are any fairies in the house, I ask if there are any witches or wizards or elves and the idea is that everybody has a everybody has like a access to a magical component of themselves right like the part of themselves that are magic one hopes they still have that you certainly had it when you were a kid and for me the access that i had to magic as a child was my fairy self so when i ask people if to identify themselves it's so much fun Mm -hmm. For instance, speaking of witches, there was a 12-year-old girl who raised her hand, and her parents were there, and they kind of looked at her like, what? And she told me, uh, she said, do you know what witch stands for? And I was like, no, I don't think so. Tell me. And she said, it stands for a woman in total control of herself. 12 years old. That's so cool. So, it's wonderful to allow people to have this sort of public declaration of their magical self, because I really believe that the way that we're going to be able to navigate through this very difficult time that we're facing or that we're in is to be able to access something in ourselves that is kind of almost greater than our human limitations. Like we just have to find some, and I don't mean magic in the sense of um you know you know just believing things and making them happen. I actually think magic takes a lot of work mm. to to actually make it kick in so um it's just how a way- so? well, I think theater is a great example, or making any kind of art like what you're really striving for is this sense of wonder you're you're trying to get people to feel wonder and whether it's rough wonder or, or delightful wonder you're, you're getting people, you want people to be sitting there and go like, wow. And as you know, as an artist yourself, it takes a lot of work to make a little bit of magic. And that's, you know, you have to make it look effortless as well. So I think that that's really what I mean by magic. There's a beautiful, Quote, Elizabeth Gilbert, the writer, said, magic is simply knowing what wants to happen next. And I think that artists in particular are magicians in that sense, because our job is to really look at the culture and try to figure out, like, what's coming? What do we ha- like? What are we doing here? And what's the next thing? You have to be a little bit ahead of the curve. Right. mm mm-hmm. creative person.
0: So, could you tell me a little bit more about the the radical fairy movement? Like, 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 when did it kind of start? I mean, this is my first time hearing about it, so I, I'm I'm very intrigued.
1: Well, the radical fairies started around the 1960s. And it came out of the sort of hippie uh, culture, and um, I, admittedly, I'm not an expert on radical fairies, um, but there are places around the uni- United States. There are fairy camps. And people go, um, you know, and they, they live there for a time. Mm-hmm. Like like what, what we would call a vacation. <laughs> they go into the woods and they live as fairies in the woods. And, it, it, and I haven't done it because I'm not a radical fairy. I'm just a f- freelance fairy representing my own fairiness. Um, so you'd have to ask a, fr- a radical fairy uh, like for personal uh, testimony.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, that I'll add that to the list for this series then, because I'd be I'd be very very intrigued. Um, so, well, let's talk about Edinburgh for a little bit then. Was that your first Fringe? Yes.
1: Yeah. Me too. It's something I've always wanted to do, and um, I, I I had no idea <laughs> that it was
0: as huge an enterprise as it was. Were you surprised? Well. I talked to everybody I could before doing it, like everybody who had done it that I knew, comics, musicians, uh, musicians, whoever. And so I felt as prepped as one could be without physically doing it. So I knew I was like, there's 3,500 shows. I am one of them. Um, You know, like I, I was kind of aware of all of that. But it is one of those things you don't truly know. Until you just jump in and do it. And and like yourself, I, I too, I've, I have wanted to do it since literally my first open mic. And finally, the stars aligned where I was able to do it. And I had a blast. Did you have fun? What was your takeaway?
1: You know, I had a really good time when I actually got to perform, like when I was on stage. I think mm-hmm. all of the, um, the the effort that you have to put into it to get an audience Was um, you know, when I found out that the average audience size is eight people for a show at Edinburgh, I was like, "Well, what? Nobody told me that." I, you know, I didn't ask a lot of people because I never think that the rules apply to me. I always think like, "Well, that's true for everybody else," but like, um, which is probably not smart way to go at it, but it's the way that I do it. Otherwise, I'd never do anything. Um, but so I was a little, you know, wait. I I expected a, a bigger crowd, right? Mm. And so once you adjust to a smaller crowd and you just go like, okay, this is what it is. I started to have a ball. Like I just was, I, the audiences were wonderful. Um, they were smart. It was great to perform to people I had no experience with. Cause usually I perform in like New York or LA and I sort of know people in mm. the audience and, this was really like a every day was performing for an audience that I'd never met before. And I didn't know anyone in the audience. It was so exciting. Um, so there was that. And also seeing other performers, seeing other things that were on offer there was amazing to be able to support other people. Um, you know, not everything was fantastic, but everything's interesting. Did you get to a lot of shows? I got to enough you know, mm-hmm. I, I think it's hard when you're performing. Um, you know, yeah. I was also living down at the bottom of the hill in Newtown. So every every day it was like a trek to come up the hill and to yeah. you know, get to the theater. But, um, yeah, so some wonderful things. And some some things that were in the International Festival as well. You know, some big venue uh, pieces and some little pieces, you know, like solo shows.
0: Mm-hmm. I didn't get to see a whole lot because it's, you know, I mean, I, I was through the free fringe. And so as a comic, it was you would do your hour every day. And then you would also do like showcase shows whenever you could get them. Yeah. So typically I, I would I, I averaged about three sets a day, one of them being my hour. Oh, and then, my gosh.
1: Three sets a day.
0: That's actually tame compared to some comics. There was one guy on one of the days, he did 11 spots. Wow. eleven. That's
1: really, that's really yeah. worked in the room.
0: Right? I mean, and now you're not doing your hour. You're not doing 11 hours, but, yeah. but it's like you'll do your hour usually once, and then you do like 10-minute spots and you know, like mixed bills, showcases and stuff like that. So, so I guess I saw a lot of comedy via that, because I'd yeah. be on a show with a bunch of other comedians. Um, but you know, I didn't get to go to uh, a lot of other shows. And I also had time conflicts with a lot of the people I knew. Like, it was just random that it was either we were on at pretty much the same time. Because I, w- I was 4 p.m. Or it was their show was at 2.30 and it would be over at 3.30. And then my venue was 25 minutes away. so So there was just no way. I could pull that off. Yeah. You know what and I mean? I, so. I, I think the festival really
1: is it's really geared towards comedy. Like it's really it's it's really geared towards sort of stand up and there are different levels of it but um I think in that sense I felt a little bit like my show was a little bit too theatrical for the festival. Hmm. Um so it was hard for an audience to find me because I'm, I wasn't a comedian. Like, I'm, I'm not a stand-up comedian. I'm just, I do something completely different. But what I noticed was that the things that were comedy shows were doing really, were doing really well. Did you mm-hmm. have a good time doing that? All those spots,
0: like three. Oh, times? I, had, I had a wonderful time. I mean, it, it was one of those things. You know, my friend Bronson Jones, who's a, a very funny comic out of L.A., he puts it this way, and I feel like he sums it up the absolute best. The fringe is the best worst thing in the world, and it's <laughs> you know, like like you will have it and yeah. throughout. I, and I only did two weeks. I didn't do the full month. But, you know, throughout my two week run, I had massive highs where I felt like I was on top of the world. I had crushing lows where I felt like a fraud who should quit comedy. And I had a lot totally in between. And but it was amazing. And and the good outweighed the bad by an awful lot. And that was my experience. And I hope to be back very regularly. Oh, really? You're going to go back next year? I don't know about next year, but, but I, I hope to go back as regularly as I possibly can. I mean, I mean, one of the reasons I did it was because I want to tour more internationally. So, you know, like I'm hoping I, I will do something next year. I don't know if it's going to be the fringe or, or something elsewhere in the UK, but, but yeah. So, uh, let's get back to you. Tell me about the Trevor project.
1: Oh, so the Trevor project, um, for those who don't know is, uh, it's the largest um, suicide prevention and crisis intervention lifeline for LGBT and questioning young people. Uh, it's been around, it started 25 years ago, and it started because I I, I was doing a solo show, uh, it was called Word of Mouth, and I did it off-Broadway in New York, and as part of that show, I was playing a whole bunch of different characters and as I am am known to do. And one of those characters was a story of basically my uh, teenage self. I called myself Trevor and I told the story of um, my attempt of suicide. And it was actually very funny and very poignant. It was called Trevor and it was only 10 minutes long. It was only 10 minutes, uh, a part of a larger show and uh peggy Risky, a director producer and randy stone a producer saw the show and they asked me if i would uh adapt trevor into a short film so we made it into a 15 minute film mm-hmm. and uh, i wasn't in the film i didn't play my 13 year old self you'll be pleased to know no, no um, I, i've i've seen it but yeah um and so th- that film uh It won an Academy Award in 1995 and went on to when when we put it on HBO, we thought it would be a good idea if there was a telephone number at the end of the film in case there were young people in their living rooms who saw the film and identified with the character of Trevor. And, you know, at the time, Ellen DeGeneres was hugely famous. She had just come out. And so she did a wraparound presentation for the film. So we knew it was going to be a big deal. And so uh, we started the Trevor Project uh, in 1998. And that first night when the f- uh, film was on TV, we got over 1,500 telephone calls from young people around the country. And that was, and not all of them were queer and not all of them were suicidal, but it just was an indication of the, the, the need for it at a time when people weren't really weren't thinking about young people and their sexuality or their gender identification. I mean gender wasn't even discussed when we started the Trevor project it was for gay and lesbian young people, right? And then eventually the you know the B was put on and the T was put on and the Q was put on. Um so back then people didn't really talk about young people being gay or lesbian. They just Assumed people went to college and that's how it happened. (laughs) Like you just came back from college and you were gay. Like they didn't understand, like, you know, my experience, which was that I knew I was, I knew I was gay since the time I, I, you know, I can remember. Um, I didn't have a name for it or a word for it at back then, but I knew what I was. I knew I was different.
0: So, so that film is, is based completely on your experience.
1: Well, you know, it's a fictionalized version, but it's, um, it's, it, you know, it's as close as I could, um, I could come and still make it entertaining. (laughs) I mean, you know, part of it was that it was, I think what made it so acceptable at that time was that it was funny and it was, and, and, and and touching at the same time. Right. It wasn't depressing. It was actually saying like, wait, what, is this, and how can we make this not into a tragedy? Mm-hmm. right? How can we make you know queerness not be a death sentence because I wrote that piece during the AIDS uh epidemic, you know in New York City, I was living at the time, and everyone in my generation, you not everyone, but many, many people were dying, and when I heard the news report about gay teen suicide i just was like this is insane like there here's this one generation that's dying and nobody seems to be caring about and here's this other generation coming up who are taking their lives and i just thought this is crazy this is crazy it's it, it you know being gay is a wonderful thing it's an amazing amazing Asset not just to the gay people themselves, but to the society. You know that that there is a group of people who are so determined to be their authentic selves is is a help to everybody. I mean, anyone who wants to be their authentic selves.
0: In in 1998, um, please correct me if I'm off, but that was also the year of Matthew Shepard. Correct? Yeah. So, was, so did yeah. that play into the launch as well? Like, like did you get phone calls of people who were, who were very affected by that? Or
1: I don't remember because I, wasn't, I didn't have that much contact with the he- Lifeline at that time. Um, I later became a Lifeline counselor myself for a number of years. Um, and that's really what inspired me to go out and start the second organization that I started, which is called the, per- the Future Perfect Project. And the Future Perfect Project is really um, an organization that is dedicated to amplifying the voices of queer youth, the creative voices of queer youth around the country. So whereas the Trevor Project is an organization that receives the voice of the young people who are out there, uh, the Future Perfect Project is actually broadcasting their voices out into the world. Because I just started to notice that they, this generation of queer young people really had something to say mm-hmm. that had never been said before. They were just completely brand new iteration of gayness and queerness. And um, it was so exciting to see a generation come up who actually understood themselves and their history. Like, they knew that people came before them who had fought for their right to be themselves, mm. right? And they also had a sense of people who were coming after them, that they had a responsibility to the younger generation behind them. Um, They also had a social justice component I'd never seen in people so young. And they were just smart because they all had, you know, they all had grown up with, you know, this little phone in their hand and they had yeah. end- to all their questions, right? Um, So it was such a a huge shift after having worked with young people for 20 years to see this shift. I wanted to be able to do what I could to give them the opportunity to tell us what it's like to be them and tell us what they know and tell us what it's like to dare to be your authentic self in the face of no,
0: well, and, and let me jump in here and, and, and feel free to to add to this, but but the Future Perfect project, y'all put out records. You you have a record label component. You put out animated shorts that allows LGBTQ uh IA people to tell their stories. You have just general resources uh online and, and of course you have that at the Trevor Project as well. Um and, and so you have you have a podcast. So you have all these creative outlets. For young people, which I think is so incredibly essential uh, for, I mean, you know, even just me personally, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not gay, but, you know, I can tell you that a punk rock music scene kept me out of a lot of trouble when I was yeah. younger. Yeah, I can yeah. tell you that I guarantee it kept me out of trouble. And, and honestly, well, there was some very negative things going on in that world, as as there can be anywhere. I also learned a lot of positive lessons about LGBTQ uh, people. I learned a lot about acceptance because there were uh, people in that scene. Mm. And so for someone like me, it it helped teach me what it meant and what it was and, and how to, you know, try to be a, a good ally and a decent person. Um, And it and also think- taught me a lot. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I I was just going to say, you know, to put a button on it, it. It also just taught me a lot about, you know, just being yourself.
1: Yeah. And I think this is the thing that art really can do. I know for me, it saved my life. Mm-hmm. Had I not met the world of theater when I was 15 years old, I just, w- I wouldn't have made it through. I just wouldn't have. I it, I found my people. I found my tribe. But most importantly, I found access to myself. The art gave me the access to something deeper in myself that I needed to, ha- to, to be able to express myself. So I feel that, especially with queer young people, because being, there's this all-out assault lately to silence them and disappear them, I wanted to be able to give them a platform w- through which they could actually speak Right. That they could actually say what they want to say about their lives and to to everybody and show us how amazing it is to be yourself. And I I really think that this is what, you know, the right is so upset about with, you know, queer, non-binary, trans people, especially, is that these are people who are listening to their hearts and they're listening to their bodies. They're not listening to authority they're listening to something inside themselves that's telling them who they are and this is it's just driving them crazy right it's like that you could actually have a, a you know a secret place inside yourself that you're going to find the answers to your your questions that you can turn to yourself and your own wisdom and look you know as we know young people don't have all the equipment they don't have all the information but that's why giving them access to art is to me such an important step in the development of young people. Because not only does it get them connected to themselves, it gets them to work with one another in community. And that's really how we learn to be human beings.
0: Absolutely. So would you say it has gotten better for LGBTQ youth over the past, say, like 20 years? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I mean, first of all, you don't have to, you don't have to do it in secret. Mm -hmm. There's the internet, which a lot of people decry and say, Oh, it's so terrible what's happening to young people. And because they're always on their phones, and they're always on the internet. And, and look, there are a lot of dangers in it. We know that. But these young people have been, they've been raised on the internet and with their phones. They've learned to navigate it in the same way that I learned to navigate the mall when I was, you know, 14 and 15. They've, you know, when they're in fourth and fifth grade, they're online asking questions, finding out about themselves and who they are. They're actually able to find other people. They're able to communicate in ways that I only had a telephone and it was there was only one telephone in my house, so I wasn't able to stay on it a, lo- a lot of, of the time. But, you know, I think that it's it's given them such access to the world that they can see reflections of their se- themselves out there in the world. And that is, that's, you just feel less alone. You know you're not crazy. I mean, I actually thought I was the only gay person in the entire world Up until I was about 15 years old. Where'd you grow up? New Jersey, a suburb in New Jersey. But I, you know, there was nobody in my environment, nobody. I mean, nobody who was out and certainly, you know, it was never discussed and it wasn't on TV and it wasn't anywhere except in me. That was the only place that I knew I could identify it. And I didn't even have a word for it. So if you say, you know, if people ask me if it's gotten better, I'm like, yeah, Mm -hmm. I look around and I think I never, ever could have imagined the young people that I meet today. They are way beyond anything that I could have imagined, just how smart they are and how um, how cool they are, How, how how full of hope they are in the face of. I think one of the reasons I did this show, poof, is because I really wanted to get people's hopes up because many of the people I know don't have much hope for the world. And I look at these young people and, you know, they're terrified and 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 nervous for sure. And having to face what looks like really bad news in terms of our <laughs> survival. Mm-hmm. But they have a lot of hope. And I really want people to start to think about, like, well, what do we want to imagine beyond this apocalyptic, you know, end? Like, what what do what do we want to imagine for ourselves and for our young people? What kind of a world do we want to create? We have to start creating it now for them. We we can't wait
0: for them to do it, and we shouldn't. So I I, I want to run this. By you, because, you know, I I started just paying greater attention to the world around me uh, in about 2004. And, you know, like like at that time, I was, I'm 38. How old were you in in 2004? I was like 18, 19. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I I was, I I was basically, I mean, I, I had some exposure Um, I, I, you know, and and I actually, my first time learning about, um, just, just gay people was was actually via my parents. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so I, I guess I, I, I can go back a little further. Like I was about nine or 10 years old and like a nine or 10 year old who didn't know any better. I called something gay in front of my mom and my mom said, what does that mean? And I go, what? What does "what" mean? And she goes, "You just said that's gay about something. What does that mean?" And I said, I, "I, I don't know. It's just kids in school say it. It means that it's, uh, it's stupid." And she goes, "Well, that that's not what it means. Do you know that?" And I go, "I, I, I, I don't know." And and she goes, "You know our friends Mike and Ray?" And I go, "Yeah." She goes, "You love spending time with them." And I go, well, of course I do. And she goes, they're not roommates. And I never <laughs> said it again.
1: Oh, my God. I love your mom. She's so <laughs> <great>. <laughs> Just tell her I said hi. I will. I will.
0: I will. Yeah. That was so... Well done. Well done, Ron's mom. Ah. <laughs> uh. That I, I will let her know. Yeah, and I and I never said it again. And and then and yeah, and, and they're still some of our best family friends to this day. Their their kid is uh, brilliant, and she's about to go off to college. So 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 I had some, but but as far as like waking up to the political world and, and seeing the um, homophobia from the Bush administration, I, I really became hyper aware of that in around 2004 via the Iraq war. Um, I, I had more LGBTQ people in my life because um, I was in college. And, you know, I remember that. And of course, I remember, you know, getting past that and, and feeling like society had evolved some celebrating in the streets when when gay marriage w- was was signed into law. And now I see what's happening, particularly to trans people, mm-hmm. and I see what's going on in places like Florida, mm-hmm. and you know, and I realize that my perspective is is you know just just what I see, but I feel like there is a certain level of cruelty where it is as barbaric as. We want these people out of existence. And, and, and to me, it is just frightening to, to the point where sometimes I wonder, are we going backwards? Yeah, but it's
1: important to understand that the people who are being cruel, are it's a very small minority. And that most people, and I'm sure you have, well, I'm guessing, because I, as I travel around the United States... And I work with young queer people everywhere I go. People are incredibly open hearted about it and they've moved. They've moved beyond it. Most people understand that this is not the issue that those divisive, cruel people would have us believe. And they are doing it in order to instill fear in people like you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they're, they're very they're very um, it's, it's not a new tactic. It was, they did it when I was, you know, 18, 19 years old. Uh, they had, a, you know, an all out campaign to, you know, eliminate gay people just as I was coming into the world. And I was like, they're insane. They're insane. And what they're terrified of is being themselves. That's what they're afraid of. They, they're afraid that we will like, but when you ask me, like, does, it, has it gotten better? the the reason it has gotten better is because your family friends Mike and
0: uh Mike and Ray are their names yeah
1: Mike and Ray told their stories they came out to their friends and to their families and people went we love you Mike and Ray we we love you like you you can be yourself like it's okay it changed the way The world was organized because people had the courage at a particular moment over a period of time, you know, from the 1980s to the, you know, the the 2000s and beyond. And they said, We have to do this. We have to tell our parents. We have to tell my aunt. We have to tell our cousins. We have to tell our children. People actually used their good sense and their sense of courage, they summoned it, and they they revealed who they were, which was an amazing thing that happened in this society. And now there are too many people, and there are too many young people, let me tell you, there's an army of young people who, even if they don't identify as queer, are aligned with queer people and are not having it. They're not having it. They're not going to stand by and watch their friends be silenced and disappeared it's just not going to happen and i don't think that there are enough parents um who are going to allow their children to be disappeared and um i mean i i I just think you know any look we certainly know that there are enough people still who don't allow their their young people to express themselves but i'd say by and large that has changed and it's going Mm -hmm. to change if i have anything to say about
0: it (laughs) <laughs> absolutely. So, 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 how how would you say is the best way to fight back against you know the the kind of latest contemporary struggle? Because you see, I mean, like you you kind of in, insinuated the absolutely insane propaganda that's out there, and, and I and I think especially. The stuff that you're seeing about the trans community, the, these ridiculous points of association people are making, these totally insulting, ignorant representations of what gender-affirming care is, yeah. just a total lack of understanding of the field of research to a to a profoundly ignorant level. Um, but like any form of propaganda, when a lie is repeated enough— people will start to believe it's true. People will start to believe something as absurd as there are, there's litter boxes in classrooms because a student is identifying. I I mean, and we don't even need to go through more examples because they're so profoundly ignorant and insulting. I don't even want to go through the line, but you know what I'm referring to. How do, how do we push back against that?
1: I think that the way that we can respond um, is with love. I think that if you know trans people, check in with them, make sure that they're okay, talk to them, see if they're all right, see what they need. Like they are under attack. And the more that we can actually align ourselves with them and stand with them and give them space in our communities and give them room to express themselves, the more people realize that. So that was so weird. I just had a, a little, I had a glitch in my, um, uh, internet service that was so weird so here i'm oh, lovely yeah okay, so, I, so i was on a roll so i'm just going to finish what i was saying which yes is please I, just I pick it up the best way that we can support um our trans and non-binary and queer young people and people in general is to actually check in with them and to let them know that they have an ally in you um, the other way is to be able to support local organizations that are working to support trans and non-binary young people and adults as well. And, you know, I think that like the Trevor Project um, is supporting being a lifeline for young people. Uh, the Future Perfect Project is certainly doing our part, but there are many, many local trans organizations that are working very hard to make sure that trans people are being um, kept safe. And I think also, you know, fighting it legally, like the ACLU, supporting them and what they're doing in terms of fighting for the rights of queer people has been remarkable. Um, and But all of these are just expressions of love. And I think first and foremost is to be able to find it in your heart, to open your heart to this group of people and, and and really just think about them every day and see what actions you can take from. Inspired by your love of these people, that they're fellow human beings who are under attack and you know how it goes If they're going for the trans people, they're coming for the gay people. If they're Mm -hmm. coming for the gay people, they're coming for the women. If they're coming for the women, they're coming for everybody. They're just coming for us all. And what they don't want us to be is to be ourselves. And that's in that sense, we're all in danger. So, you know, let's support the people who are on the front lines of that dangerous attack.
0: Absolutely. So so in closing here, are there any resources specifically you want to mention to people where they can go to to do more?
1: Yeah, I would say come, you know, join our network, uh, go to the future dot org, donate, help us actually get their voices out into the world. Um, if you feel inspired to provide this Trevor Project with some support, that would be amazing because they're having to deal with. You can imagine being a teenager and knowing that there's a group of people out there in the world who actually want you dead. They want you disappeared. They want you, they don't care whether you exist or not. They just don't want you to be visible. And that takes a terrible toll on a young person. So the Trevor Project's there to actually support those young people as they go through that terrible time. And you can find them at thetrevorproject.org. Um, so those are the two that I would mention. I'm sure other people have other suggestions and it'd be fun to find out what their suggestions are.
0: And, and you know, like let's, uh, you know, you're also a, a brilliant performer, so it, it's very selfless Thank of you, you. To, to mention all the orgs, but you know, do you have any shows coming up, any creative projects coming up you want to mention?
1: You know, uh, if you're in
0: New York city on October 2nd.
1: We're uh, releasing an album. We're having a concert at Joe's Pub um, at 7 p.m. on October 2nd. Uh, It's the release of our album. It's called Divinity, but you can also get it on Spotify and Apple Music. It's a compilation of 12 singer-songwriters from all over the country. They're awesome. And we bring them through a program where they uh, write and conceive of an album. Each one of them writes a different song based on a idea and the idea behind this particular album is their relationship to perfection and it's called divinity so check it out on where you hear your music and listen give it a listen
0: well, congratulations on that. And, and thank you so much for, for doing this show. And, and most importantly, thank you so much for everything you do. It It is uh, essential work. And, and I know that it is infinitely appreciated by people uh, all over the world. So.
1: And thanks for what you do. And please really thank your mom. <laughs> <laughs> I will. She I
0: did will good. let her know. She did good. <laughs> I will let her know. Thank you for that. Cheers. <laughs> thanks, Ron. Hey guys, Ron Placone here. Take your own 1,000 challenge. No, you don't need to interview 1,000 people, although if you want to do that, go for it. Your 1,000 challenge can be whatever you want. Maybe you want to call a friend out of the blue once a week. Maybe you want to read a book every month. Maybe you want to start a different garden every season. I guess that might be dependent on where you live. Look, the point of the challenge is taking on an endeavor that enriches your life in some way, and it can be measured, and then, of course, you do it regularly. That's what 1000 is doing for me and hopefully for you too. The main reason for this podcast and every podcast I've ever done is to build community. So take your own challenge. Then join our Facebook group. It's called 1000 What's Your Challenge? That's 1000 What's Your Challenge? And post about what your 1000 challenge is and the progress you're making. All I ask is that people be encouraging of each other's challenges. This is personal and vulnerable, so be cool. There's enough negativity on social media. We don't need to add to it. For those of you who aren't on Facebook, hopefully in the future we'll be expanding to places like Discord, Reddit, but for now, we're starting on Facebook. And again, that Facebook group is called 1000 What's Your Challenge? See you there.